Hi, friends. I do pay attention to your DMs. I mean, part of this show is responding back to some of the DMs I get. And one of the DMs I seem to be getting a lot of is how you just miss the celebrity trial recaps. If you followed me on Instagram during the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, you know that for six weeks, every single day, I was there recapping in my stories every single moment of the trial. It was it was wild, but it was a real bonding moment, I felt like, between you and I. Well, another person that you met during those recaps is my guest today, Kate Moss. And it's not that Kate Moss, because again, if you followed me during these recaps, then you met Kate Watson Moss. She's a defamation attorney, and she would join me on my IG Live depth dives to help me break down the more technical legal sides of the case. Because remember, I'm not a lawyer. I'm just a girl who went to the University of Judge Judy. We want to get into several cases because there's so many in the headlines. I mean, I was just reading on TMZ about how Kanye West and Candace Owens, the family of George Floyd, was pursuing options to possibly sue them. You know, Candace just released that BLM doc. You know, they made some claims about how Floyd died. Who knows what will happen with that? And then we have Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. I mean, that's a case that has taken some major twists and turns. You know, it started out as a battle over the sale of their winery to this Russian oligarch, and now has turned into accusations of abuse against Brad, a lawsuit against the FBI filed by Angelina, leaked emails, all sorts of mess that we want to unpack and understand where the case stands now. We also want to get into the Harvey Weinstein and Danny Masterson case. I mean, these two trials, in addition to being similar because they're both being tried in L.A. right now, they both involve various sexual assault charges that both of them have been accused of. It also involves the introduction of some interesting evidence and testimony from people. Weinstein, who is obviously the more high profile of the two cases, you know, I mean, his case essentially led to the viral Me Too movement, a judge is now saying that Mel Gibson can testify against him. Harvey is Jewish and Mel Gibson has a history of anti-Semitism. So why did the judge allow it? Danny Masterson, you know, he's a Scientologist. And now the Church of Scientology has been fighting back about their involvement in the case. But the women who have charged Danny say that the church is what prevented them from coming forward years ago. And of course, we need to break down the defamation cases that have been dominating the headlines ever since Depp v. Heard. Attorney Kate Moss predicted that defamation cases would start growing exponentially, and we'll get into why that is. We'll also talk about why these judgments are so large, why the amounts are so different, And what happens if they can't be paid? I mean, Alex Jones owes the Sandy Hook families over a billion dollars. I mean, what happens? Well, let's kiki about it. Kate Moss, attorney Kate Moss, so good to see you. I mean, we have not really done anything ever since the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial. It's been so long. Have you been keeping up with everything since the trial has ended? Yeah, I've been following it as much as I can. There's definitely less to cover. And it's interesting to see what's been going on with the insurance case. That's what I've been following the most. But it's harder. It takes a little bit more work to stay on top of it right now uh, because so many people aren't really covering it. So um, that makes it a little bit harder for me to stay on top of it, too, as well as uh, balancing my cases. But, yeah, it's, it's definitely still out there. Yeah. I mean, Amber was hit with, you know, a huge, it was what, a $10 million defamation judgment. You know, Johnny got his $2 million, so it nets to $8 million. And we'll get into later about, like, what happens when you can't pay a bill like that because, you know, you talked about how defamation suits were going to be on the rise and, you know, they definitely seem to be and we're going to get into a few of those. Amber right now, it seems she's in Spain. Johnny looks like he's on, you know, tour. Last we saw him, he was in New York and they're just kind of living this life. But, you know, it's interesting because with 
this Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt case that's sort of like dominating the headlines recently, I found it really interesting because people are starting to sort of look at these two cases very similarly, even though the Angelina and Brad is not a defamation case. But so many twists and turns have come out about this case. You know, we have discovered that this 2016 incident on an airplane that Angelina says there, you know, Brad abused her, abused the kids. And there, you know, is now a lawsuit against the FBI because of it. And so online chatter is really comparing Angelina to Amber Heard now. And this is from both sides. This is from Amber supporters and from Johnny supporters. You know, Amber supporters are saying, look, Brad Pitt has the same PR team as Johnny Depp. And this is like a PR team that was apparently also used for Harvey Weinstein. And so people are saying that this is going to be a campaign against Angelina. Um, And then people on the Johnny side are just saying, you know, Angelina is making these up because what started as a winery lawsuit has become so much more. I mean, what are your thoughts around that? I think it's really interesting. And I think it shows that in Hollywood, for example, you you learn to, when you have a lot of money and a lot of resources, you kind of farm out everything in your life to the people who are experts, right? So like you're going to an award show, you get the best hair and makeup, you get a stylist who can dress you the best you possibly can. And these celebrities are used to using those services in that way. And I think what we're seeing now is they've been doing this in business for a really long time. They get the best agents and managers they can get, but they're realizing now that these legal fights, which are happening in the court of public opinion, as much as they are happening in actual courtrooms, they're doing the same thing. So for Brad Pitt, it makes perfect sense that he would go out and hire the same PR teams that helped with Harvey Weinstein and Johnny Depp, because why wouldn't he, right? They are experts in this area. And similarly, I think that's what's happening with Angelina too. If you look at the news that's come out recently, it's very clear that since 2016, when things started to really deteriorate in their relationship, she started getting her ducks in a row in a way that someone without resources really cannot do. So she's pressing on the FBI for more information because that information can be used in her business litigation. It can be used in her custody cases. She's trying to get like FOIA information from the FBI. So that information becomes powerful for her. I think she's also using it both as like a advocacy piece and a PR piece. So by asking for more information from the FBI, she's saying all victims should have information related to the investigations of, of crimes that happened against them. And then that's going out publicly as well. So that's you know certainly trying to help her image. So I think it really is like a battle of the teams for all of these cases, like it was with Johnny and Amber and in the same way, who's got the better legal team, who's got the better PR team and leveraging that. It's so true. Now, for those who might not understand or haven't heard about this case, just a little background. I mean, we sort of got pulled in because I think it was in February of 2022 of this year, Brad filed a lawsuit. There is the Chateau Miraval. We've seen the estate. We have probably drank and I've drank the rosé. And when they got divorced, obviously, you know, Brad, he's wanted to keep this, this winery going. But Angelina decided she wanted out. And so she sold her shares of the estate. She sold it to a Russian oligarch who (laughs) I think is owner of the Stoli Vodka or is at least like an investor in the Stoli Vodka line. And now Brad is saying that, you know, he's trying to take a have a hostile takeover and that, Mm -hmm. you know, she did this out of spite because they couldn't come to an agreement over custody and all of that. So that's where this case started. Well, then what happened is we discover that there was this filing, this lawsuit against the FBI for, I guess it was Freedom of Information Act, because there was this incident that we had heard about. We had sort of heard rumblings and rumors about this incident on this private jet in 2016. What we're now learning is that Angelina says that, you know, Brad was drunk and that he pushed her and that he poured wine on her and then he poured, you know, wine and beer on the kids and he was just violent. He punched a ceiling. All these things happened. She said that there was never an investigation. It was sort of closed. And she's asking the FBI, why, you know, didn't you pursue this? So that happened. And then on top of that, 
Now she, Angelina, has filed a $250 million lawsuit sort of back at Brad. So sort of all of these things are sort of happening. I mean, what is your take? And like, why... Now, when this FBI inquiry uh, case had originally got filed, it got filed as a Jane Doe because it was like a public figure. I mean, how did it get, do you know how it got revealed or why it got revealed? So it was originally filed as a Jane Doe case, which is very common in this context. If someone is filing uh, a, a lawsuit that's sort of tied to the fact that they were a victim of a crime, especially a crime involving sexual assault or domestic abuse, it's very common that they will file as a Jane Doe because they will argue that, you know, they haven't put themselves out there in any way. Um, They need to protect, you know, they've already been victims. Once you're a victim, you're more likely to become a victim again. So they need to protect their identity. And in this case, she filed this lawsuit to try and get more information about the FBI investigation itself. I think basically what she was looking for was the entire investigation file everything about what they looked into, the information they gathered, because all of that evidence can be used in in her case against Brad Pitt for custody um, in particular. Uh, It's very relevant there. But the Federal Bureau of Investigation is is notoriously very protective over what they will release related to that kind of thing, because they don't want to know what people are, you know, so what the content of their investigations are, because it's very sensitive information and it can be used um, to a great effect. So I think that's kind of what's going on here with that. Now, what's interesting is so like we've heard about these cases and then now recently there, I guess a TikTok came out where we discovered this email that I guess it was in the court documents. So anyone who had access to the court documents could have seen it, but nobody really paid attention. And there was this email that Angelina had written. It looks like in January of 2021. And I I say it's interesting because, you know, she does reference in this email, you know, the incident on the plane. And, you know, she talks about the reasons for why she wants to sell her interest in this winery is because Brad has this alcohol problem and she doesn't feel comfortable with the family being tied to, uh, you know, a winery when there's this alcohol that's caused this issue. You know, she's referencing this issue. I think people who are on Brad's side would say, well, this is an email that just, it's a one-sided email. If I really wanted to take someone down, of course I could say in an email, you know, all of these things. I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? How how will this email play in? So I think, again, this is like just more evidence that she's getting very, very good advice because, and anytime you're sending an email, you need to, there's two purposes why you're sending an email when you know litigation is coming, right? First is the purpose for why you're actually sending it. So here she's trying to get a deal done related to the winery. So she's sending this email to try and like forward the goalposts on that. But on the same time, everything she's writing is going to be vetted. I would very heavily assume by at least a team of lawyers and a team of PR people, because you know that all of these things are eventually going to become public, especially if you're going to be in cases that have wide public appeal. So she wrote this knowing that people would look at it and knowing that it could be used as evidence. And I think that's something that lawyers advise their clients to do all the time. So for example, you just had a conversation with someone, you're worried that something might happen down the line, just shoot them a quick email, say that this is what you guys talked about. And then they can either come back and say, actually, I didn't say that. I remember things differently or not. And if they don't say anything back, then it's kind of an endorsement of what you've said, right? Well, that's what I would think. I mean, because I I was like, okay, are we going to see a Brad response? Because if I had gotten an email like that from Angelina, that's essentially accusing me of things that happened on a plane that I'm saying didn't happen, I would at least respond and say, "Uh, you're crazy, never happened, try again, at at the very least, right? Right. And it's certainly possible that he did do that and we just don't know it. It's just not having seen the full case file, we can't really say, right? Yeah. It's just kind of like a what's out there and what isn't at this point. I mean, will we ever see the case? I mean, first of all, do you think that this case is actually going to make it to trial or do you think there will be a settling that happens before that? For the FOIA case? I mean, there's so many cases, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I guess for for the original case, you know, of the winery, I mean, will they end up settling, you know, an amount? Or because everything's so intertwined at this point, can they even do that? Yeah, I'd be interested to see what will happen with that. 
I think they'll probably come to a settlement. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is 90% of cases settle. So it's very likely that it will settle, especially this is ultimately a business decision. It's a money decision. It's just trying to figure out what's the right amount that can get paid here. So I do think that they will sort of reach there, regardless of the fact that the emotions are so high. What I think is kind of interesting about the FOIA case is uh, there was a motion to uh, keep the case file sealed, which she lost. And that's why we are seeing all of these public documents now, because there's a general rule that court cases in the U.S. are kept open. It's why we it's one of like the fundamental principles of the American judicial system, as opposed to places like Russia, where everything is closed. There's no sort of like public comment on lawsuits. So I think that case, the court said, no, the file is going to be open, but you can still proceed as Jane Doe. We're not going to, you know, unmask you, which is interesting because everyone now knows who she is. Yeah. (laughs) So it's kind of a win. It's not really like a win at all because she's been unmasked. Everyone knows it's her case. And anything that comes out now in the case will be identified as her because the case file is now open. I think they'll probably have sort of case-by-case decisions about whether something will be sealed or not. Stuff related to the kids, I think there's a very strong argument that that should stay sealed and no one will see it. But there's no sort of presumption that things are private now. So they're going to have to be very careful about what they put in the court record. Um, And for anyone uh, who hasn't figured it out, because I actually put together context clues, FOIA is the freedom of information lawsuit that Angelina is filing against the FBI. What's also so interesting about these cases is because, you know, Brad is very much like, I feel like Angelina is doing this because she doesn't want me to have a relationship with my kids. She's trying to keep me from my kids. You know, I've talked to friends about this who say Angelina, you know, she has her own daddy issues with John Voight. You know, we kind of know that history there and that, you know, this could be her just trying to like get back at Brad. You know, I don't know all that. But what I do know is like, most of these kids are grown now. And it's kind of crazy too, because at some point they're all going to turn 18 and they can decide whether to have a relationship with him or not. I guess I'm more interested to see if they will make that choice. Right. And in the family law courts too, there's this uh, process called a guardian ad litem, which is a sort of a guardian who comes into the court and serves as a representative of a minor child. So children as young as 12, 13, 14, they have opinions, right? They have opinions about whether they want to go stay with mom or they want to go stay with dad. And there's usually someone appointed to the court to sort of be the child's voice in this situation. And these children will have their own say, really. And I think that's part of why Angelina in the Freedom of Information Act suit is kind of flipping this as we are pursuing this case because we want to preserve access to federal agency records related to domestic violence and domestic abuse so that we can help these victims advocate for themselves when they go in front of the court. And I think that's also what she's trying to do here is it's not just for her. I think she's also trying to set a precedent, which is why she's hired very the lawyer she's hired is a big deal litigator who's worked on like trafficking cases to try yeah. and sort of make sure that they this is a right that's preserved in the state of California and elsewhere. Well, that, you know, we know she's a humanitarian, so that does make a lot of sense. Does it matter sort of like when that Freedom of Information Act does get ruled on, though, in relation to her case, though? Yeah, I think it does. I think, you know, to the extent there's going to be information that comes out that they can get from the FBI file that would be helpful in in her domestic cases or her case with the business, the sooner she gets that information, the better, because that's the sooner she can use it. Because the government doesn't move that fast. I just, this feels like something that will drag on. And I mean, I know that the winery case, I think, was scheduled for early 2023. I mean, am I mistaken? Yeah, no, that's right. And I think the question is how quickly they can move to get the government briefing this and get this issue resolved, because I have a feeling that only half of it is she wants to be able to use it, because now a lot of the information about the allegations are out there, right? So it doesn't matter as much what's in the file, because everyone kind of knows about the allegations now, whereas before they were private. So I think she's gotten a lot of what she was looking for on that front, if I had to guess. And now it's kind of like, okay, this is like a a matter of principle and I'm sticking to it and I want to do this um, because I have an investment in it like that. I mean, I haven't looked on Twitter to see if any of these hashtags are trending, but I imagine when this all starts, like there will be a hashtag Brad Pitt is an abuser, hashtag Angelina Jolie is a liar. I mean, we saw it with, you know, Johnny and Amber, and I imagine it'll be very much the same, especially because they're using similar, same teams, you know? I mean, I do think it's sad too, because for all of that ugliness around the, her depth trial, there were 
no children there, right, to sort of have to bear the brunt of that. Here they've got a ton of kids yeah. who are old enough to read this stuff. And that's just got to be really, that sucks. So it does seem like he's not as present in their life from what we can tell. And we don't, you know, is the reason because he doesn't have access or he chooses? I don't know. But um, it is sad for the kids. So I guess we'll see how it plays out. One case that I would love to see, I would love to see play out in person because it's happening in LA and, you know, we don't get the uh, luxury of televised trials like we did in uh, Depp versus Heard. Harvey Weinstein and Danny Masterson, both men are on trial in LA right now. Um, Obviously, Weinstein is the more high profile of the two. You know, both are being charged with, you know, rape, sexual assault allegations, Harvey was already found guilty in New York. He was sentenced to 23 years in prison, but just recently got, I guess, won the right to get an appeal hearing. So there's a chance that that conviction could be appealed. Danny Masterson, he is facing allegations from, I think, back in 2001 through 2003, three charges of rape. And that case is really interesting because... It's also like the Church of Scientology is sort of on the stand. So both of these cases are really interesting. What's really interesting about the Weinstein trial, is it Weinstein or why? I always say Weinstein, Weinstein. I think it's Weinstein. I think it's Weinstein. Weinstein. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) With Weinstein is like, in addition to the appeal, which I want to ask you, why was he given, uh, granted a hearing for an appeal? Like what happened in that trial that like would have allowed that? So I think first... One thing that I've noticed when I was poking around the news about the the New York appeal is New York courts are really weird. They're very, like, they want to do things super, super weird and different. So the trial court, like the first court you go to when you have a case, they call that the Supreme Court. That is so confusing and, and dumb in my opinion. But yeah. so, th- so there's the Supreme Court and then there's the appeals court, which is, they call it the appellate division of the Supreme Court. So that's sort of the first level that you appeal to. He appealed there. And it got kicked, it got kicked down. They denied it. So then he appealed that denial up to the Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in New York, which normally would be called the Supreme Court. So okay. that that I think is like lost in a lot of the news about this. So that's one thing to keep in mind. So basically he's appealed once, lost, and so he's appealing again. It's the equivalent of going to like the Supreme Court of the state. Okay. New York has this rule called the Molino rule, which is very unique. Basically, it's there's a rule against, in all courts, against using prior bad conduct to prove that someone did what they're charged for now. So basically, if I'm arrested for robbing a bank and convicted, 10 years later, I rob another bank and I'm on trial for that bank robbery, they can't introduce evidence of my prior bank robbery conviction because the jury's going to say, oh, she did it before, she did it again. And that's not fair, we say. So in New York... There's a difference is the, the Molino rule, which says you can introduce that previous evidence about a prior conviction or prior bad acts to establish motive, opportunity, intent, common scheme or plan, knowledge, identity, or absent absence of mistake or accident. So what's important here with Weinstein is he had a very specific modus operandi, right? It was the whole casting couch allegations, yeah. which involved inviting women to his hotel room, often using an assistant to get the woman there, asking for a massage. All of these sort of allegations about sexual assault happened in a similar way. Additionally, for a lot of these women, there was a lot of real fuzziness when it comes to, they had years of being okay and having text messages and perhaps having consensual encounters, but also having these non-consensual encounters And that sort of muddied the picture of what happened. So prosecutors were allowed to introduce evidence of other women who had been through similar things to show, hey, he does this all the time. This is very common. He has this common way of luring women back to his hotel room and he engages in these similar relationships with them to sexually assault them. So that was evidence that was allowed into the New York trial. That's what he was appealing on, saying, you put in all of this information, all of this evidence, which basically precluded me from being able to testify. If I had testified, you would have then brought those women in and asked me all about them. 
they also had impeachment evidence related to him being a bully and being rude and horrible to the people that he worked with. That was all basically going to be allowed to come in if he had testified. Because if you testify about your good character, the prosecution then then come in and testify about your bad character. Okay. So basically he was arguing that all of this stuff, plus the fact one of the jurors, it turns out, was writing a book about <laughs> a woman who was being... Uh, pressured into sexual uh, oh, sexual wow. actions by someone older, and she, I, I guess, wasn't forthcoming about that in oh, Wadir. That was another thing. So basically, there's like there's all these different things. All of that should be grounds for an appeal. The first appeal court said no. There was enough uh, reason to keep that information in. Everything stays. Now he's allowed to have a hearing with the highest court to try and see whether or not they should reverse the conviction. Um, we don't know whether or not that will be successful. But if he is successful, say, he'll just have to have another trial. <laughs> and so, like, if he does have to have another trial, because, you know, basically he gets convicted, then he's flies, he has to fly out to L.A. He's sitting in jail in L.A. because he has to face these uh, charges out here. Let's say he does, let's say he does get an appeal and he does get granted bail. Does that mean he gets out on bail in L.A.? Like, can he be walking free? No. So he's currently being held pending trial in L.A. on top of the fact that he's been convicted in New York. So if something happens, the real risk with something happening to the New York conviction is if the California conviction in any way relies on the facts of the New York conviction. So for example, if they tell the jury in California that he's been convicted of related incidents or the same kind of thing in New York, that conviction gets overturned. That presents a question of, well, do we have to overturn everything in California as well? So I'm sure the prosecution in California is thinking very carefully about whether, if at all, they're going to be discussing the New York conviction because you don't want to have to just get that all thrown out because of that. Well, yeah, now, I mean, it seems like the smartest thing to do would be leave it out completely. And I mean, I'm sorry. I think that I I would think that the L.A. has enough evidence that they don't have to introduce that New York trial at all. Right. And I think the main reason why prosecutors like to introduce evidence like that is because juries sometimes feel uncomfortable with the idea of being responsible for someone going away to prison for a long time. So if you can say like, He's already been sent to prison. You're just tacking more years onto that. You don't have to actually send this guy. He's already there. That might make it a little bit easier. It also sort of supports the idea that other people have found what you're about to find in terms of the facts and what happened. Um, makes it a little bit easier for an easier pill for the jury to swallow. But I think you're right. I think they should have enough evidence to be able to do that without having to rely so heavily on the New York case. Yeah. You know, I had posted the other day um, because, you know, Harvey, obviously we, we we saw he was in declining health during the New York trial. I mean, he's like using this walker. He looks like, you know, he's like losing weight. He doesn't look great. Apparently I mean, got you know, no teeth. Yeah, teeth are falling out of his head. I had posted about it because I was just like, okay, you know, and I think that's bad because I don't want to act like I don't care about prisoner rights. You know, there's, you know, I know that prisoners get treated so poorly in prison, but there's just something about um, a rich guy who did disgusting things that like, you're just kind of like, oh, well, if teeth are falling out of your head, teeth are falling out of your head, I guess. Like, it is what it is. Now, Danny Masterson, like this is, you know, most people obviously remember him as Hyde from that 70s show. I mean, it was like, I mean, everyone I know loved that show. Back in 2017, some accusations were made public, but these were accusations, you know, again, stemming back from 2001, 2004, where women came forward and said that he had raped them. Now, This all sort of came to a head because, you know, Leah Remini, who was, you know, a big Scientologist and, as we know, went against the church, did a whole series on it talking about, you know, how terrible they are. When she came forward, this inspired the women to come forward with their stories because what they're saying, you know, these women were also Scientologists and they said they went to the church and the church basically, they're saying intimidated them into not moving forward with the charges. So that's why this has dragged on for so long. And Danny was finally charged in 2020 with three counts. I think two of the charges, one of them had passed the statute and, you know, one there was an evidence, but he does have three charges. He's facing 45 years in prison. And what's interesting about this case is because 
the Church of Scientology actually went to the Supreme Court to say, we don't want our church. They're going to, what they said was they sought, they're seeking to weaponize the First Amendment against religious freedom. The Supreme Court declined to intervene. The judge in the actual case, the LA judge, you know, said that they were not going to put Scientology on trial, but it seems that the church's practices will come under scrutiny because it it does play a part in why these women didn't come forward. Yeah, that's going to really make this case very messy because it sounds to me like Scientology played a major role in these women's stories. That's how they met him. They were precluded from going and seeking justice is what they allege because they were facing such extreme harassment and pressure from the church that I don't know how they can tell their story to a jury without explaining all of that. And the court, I I remember reading that uh, Masterson's lawyers were saying, well, you could refer to them as the church or the organization or all of these other things. Just don't use the word Scientologist. And it just makes me wonder, one, does it make that much of a difference? And two, if Scientology is that much of like a of a red of a red flag for people, then um, that seems to me that it almost strengthens the other side's argument because it shows that they're this organization that has so much mystery and controversy around them that you can't tell the story without including that piece. It's it's the, the equivalent of people who are in a cult who have been like subjected to crimes because of their status in that cult. You can't tell the story of that. I'm not saying that Scientology is or isn't a cult. I mean, that's what that's for people yeah. to believe what they want to, whatever they want to say. Yeah. But I think if there's an organization that looms this heavily in the background, I don't know how you can tell that story without it. And I think it's going to be an uphill battle for them to try and exclude that kind of information from the trial. There was this report that came out from the Daily Beast even that said it highlighted the LAPD's fundraising relationship partnership with the Church of Scientology through Police Activities League, an organization which Danny Masterson was reportedly involved in. And they're saying like that's why the LAPD was sort of dragging their feet on these charges because they're, you know, getting money or, you know, they're involved with it. Right. I think it's also to remember there's I think there's two cases running right now. There's this these crim this criminal trial, um, which I think that story of the LA PD investigation is going to play less of a role because prosecutors don't want to sort of make themselves look less credible. But the civil case, I think, is where that will be heavily exploited because that's all about not just what happened to these women, but also what happened to them afterwards, right? It's about the ongoing harassment they say that they experienced afterwards. So that's where that's going to be super relevant. Yeah, because the women sued the Church of Scientology. Um, I'm not sure exactly when that when that was, but yeah, there's the case, obviously the criminal case against Danny, but yeah, the women have also sued the Church of Scientology. What was also interesting was just even in like when this case was finally reopened, some of the evidence they say they found, you know, were emails sent to and from Scientology officers at the time of the alleged rapes and even a threatening handwritten letter by Danny Masterson sent to one of the alleged victims. I mean, that's a lot. I mean, that's some pretty serious evidence to have that you're just sitting on. Well, and that's another. So we talked at the beginning of this session about uh, when you're getting good legal advice. That's bad legal advice. <laughs> Someone who is given getting good legal advice would be told, "Why are you putting anything in writing, dummy? Don't write anything down." This is uh, an example of, of that. But I think that's also part of this too. And looking at the Daily Beast piece, his publicist it was all over not just this article, but also on the police report as one of a, as a witness. That to me is a real like red flag um, that you are not probably getting the best advice because that person is going to be dragged into all of this mess. Well, I wonder if, you know, he was only using, you know, legal teams involved with the church and like, who knows if they have the best legal team. It's like, you have to be a really good lawyer and decide to be a Scientologist. You know, they're just kind of like, you get our legal team, you get what you get, right? Right, right. Not to go backwards too, but like the reason this is interesting because the whole introduction of like what can come 
what can come into, you know, when you're getting deposed or when, you know, people who are testifying, going back to Weinstein, you know, it was also just ruled that Mel Gibson is going to be allowed to testify against Harvey Weinstein, which obviously Harvey's attorneys are fighting because Mel Gibson has a history of anti-Semitism and Harvey is Jewish. Like, could that be a cause also for Harvey at some point to file an appeal? So the question, um, my understanding of like what happened there was they wanted to bring Mel Gibson in to kind of corroborate one of the victim's statements. He, I guess, was someone she talked to afterwards. Weinstein's lawyers tried to get him kicked out on that argument, right? Or alternatively to say, well, yeah, sure, he can come in, but we're going to bring up all of these awful things he said in the past. And the judge then has to make the call. The judge is really the referee in this instance of, okay, can he come in? Can Mel Gibson come in and testify? And if so, what are the sort of the areas where he can testify? And I think what the judge did here makes a decent amount of sense. She's letting Mel Gibson come in and testify. But on the flip side, Weinstein can question him about, Weinstein's attorneys can question him about negative, why he might be doing that, his motives for testifying while cabining that just to their personal relationship and potential statements he said that would specifically relate to him, aka anti-Semitism, whereas statements he said about other groups that wouldn't apply to Weinstein are not permitted in, which I think makes sense because it's not really that relevant. If he's saying you can't testify about me because you don't like me because I'm Jewish. Well, then that's one thing. What he says about, I think it was like Asian people. Yeah, he's talking about black people, Asian people, you know, it's terrible. What does it have to do with him? It doesn't have to do with Harvey, yeah. I think the bigger question though is why does the prosecution, again, back to what we were talking about before, why do they need him at all? That's what I'm trying to wonder. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, is it ultimately going to not help that much? Especially if it seems to me from what I've heard about Mel Gibson, he can sometimes be a little bit reactive and maybe a little bit angry. I don't know. Maybe he's gone through some works in the past few years, whatever, but he's not someone who I, as an attorney would want on the stand and would want to put a lot of stock in as like, this person's going to make, is going to look super credible and super not emotional and calm and, and very convincing to the jury. I, I, it would make me very worried. It'd be a little bit of a wild card. Well, it makes me wonder, too. It's like, are people now, like, just trying to create as much sensationalism around cases because, you know, we've seen, you know, how it can sway the jury one way or the other. I mean, we can't can't say it sways the jury, but it sways the public opinion one way or the other. And, like, just by introducing, you know, we're in L.A., introducing this actor, they're just like, I don't know. It it seems unnecessary and and just doing it for... uh, I don't know, maybe not the best reasons. Yeah. And I think too, there's been a larger trend in litigation generally, which is to make these cases, especially when there's going to be a lot of coverage as big as possible, because they're working with these PR people who are all about the more time, the more discussion, the better. So the longer the case goes on, the more witnesses there are, the longer you're in the public conversation. And that to me is maybe like a little bit there's pluses and minuses of it. The more information that comes in, the more likely things are to go wrong. People do also get fatigued from it. And they are sort of like, I don't even want to think about this anymore. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Well, Danny's jury has already been selected. His trial started um, October 11th. I don't know how long it's expected to go. Harvey he's still in jury selection. They say that's going to take at least two weeks. So he will have a much longer trial. So, I mean, I will say I am, if they allow me in the courthouse, it is in LA. I probably will try a couple days to try to get in there because, you know, like it's, it's, it's going to be a circus either way. And I especially want to hear some of the testimony, even in Danny's case, just about the Scientology. I want to hear what comes out about that. I think it'll be really interesting defamation is your specialty. I mean, that is what you do. I mentioned earlier, you know, you talked about how you thought there was going to be this rise in defamation cases. Explain why exactly again. Yeah. So I think there's going to be a big rise in the use of reputational harm as sort of a cause of action. So I think because more people are communicating via social media and when things sort of go viral, they spread so far, the damage that a false statement can have is much more significant than it ever has been before. And I think also there's this sort of argument, and I think that's shown by Alex, the Alex Jones cases and some other cases that are out there, that there's this sort of non- objective idea of truth, right? Truth is subjective. So Alex Jones, for example, is being is arguing that he's being silenced for just 
asking questions and having an unpopular view. And that sort of, I think, comes from the rise of Trumpism and the 2016 election and the question of what is truth and what is false. I think that's something that people are going to start litigating more because what is true and what is false has big implications on the amount of money people can make from being a public person. So I think that plus the fact that people have now seen what um, the Depp trial did for Johnny Depp and sort of the how he was sort of injected back into the public dialogue in a way that he hasn't been in years. Um, people are going to be using these lawsuits to try and quantify the the harm the harm that they that they receive from false information being out there on the internet. Now, with Alex Jones, he had just gone through a trial in Texas, and it felt like it went through several phases. I felt like that was like kind of like a never-ending trial. I couldn't actually figure out like where it started and where it ended. But from what I gather, it seemed like there were two people who were suing him, two of the Sandy Hook family people who were suing him. They ultimately got a judgment of, I think, $40 million. But then I guess he came to face additional families in Connecticut. And that ruling led to a $965 million judgment. So overall, he owes like over a billion dollars. Now, when they listed out the different, you know, to each of the family, each of the amounts was different. And people were asking, one, why was each amount different? Especially, you know, if it's if you, if you have a six-year-old kid, you know, like what, how does one get valued over another? And two, Alex Jones, as far as we know, doesn't have a billion dollars. What happens when you can't pay that amount? Like, do you, is it just every ch- check until the end of time is, you know, you get a 30% taken out or do you go to jail at some point? Like what happens? So yeah, these are really good questions. The Alex Jones case is really interesting because it's multiple cases, right? There's the case in Texas, there's the case in in Connecticut. I think there's another case in Connecticut, maybe another case in Texas. I'm not positive, okay. but these cases have been floating around for years and years and years. And they're also interesting in that he was so uncooperative in discovery that they actually defaulted him. They said oh. basically by not participating and not doing the right thing and turning over documents and hiding documents, we're basically saying you're liable. So now all that they're doing in these cases is figuring out damages. And I think that's part of why there's this separate amount for each individual plaintiff, because all they're talking about really in these trials is how much was each individual plaintiff's reputation harmed. So the publications that are at issue in these cases were Alex Jones saying that these various family members, the parents, the siblings of the teachers and the children who were killed in the massacre are lying. They're, they're crisis actors. They um, are only doing this. A big thing that he would talk about is like, these people are just doing this to raise money for these left causes like gun control. They want to take all your guns away. And so each family, each plaintiff, he talked about them on his show in different ways. So for someone, so looking at, I have the verdict form here. The other thing about this case um, is the Connecticut uh, website, like the one in Virginia. It's actually very easy to download files from. So I highly, highly recommend. Okay. So for example, Robbie Parker is one of the defendants, uh, one of the plaintiffs who's been talked about a lot in this case. He was basically torn apart. He was talked about a lot on the show. And so they gave him 60 million in defamation slander damages. So basically that's reputational damages and then 60 million in emotional distress damages. So um, Robbie Parker had to move a couple of times. He faced all of these different problems based on his support, Alex Jones' supporters going after him. So he made, uh, he, he was awarded 120 million under the verdict form. Now there are other people who made 10,000. So Jackie Barden is another one of the plaintiffs, 10 million in defamation slander damages. 18,800,000 in emotional distress damages, mostly because she wasn't talked about as much on the okay. show. So that's really what they were focusing on with each plaintiff is you have to prove damages. You can't just say like, I think you should have to pay a lot of money. You have to be, you have to tie the amount to something. That makes, so that's yeah, what the so jury that makes a lot do. of sense. And can you, yeah. can he bankruptcy out of these judgments? So that's a super interesting question, um, especially because these judgments are not just against him. They're also against Free Speech Systems LLC, which is the LLC that sort of runs his show. And okay, also the all of like is under that, that. Okay. Yeah. And also not just that he's got like supplement companies. Oh, yeah. Always selling those supplements. He's still selling those supplements. Yeah. Free Speech Systems is actually currently in bankruptcy proceedings. And there's been a lot of 
accusations regarding him fraudulently moving assets around, them trying to hide assets, trying to change assets based on how things are characterized. And he's trying to do as much as he can to avoid paying a judgment. It's actually very hard to avoid a judgment, especially when there's this much scrutiny on you, short of him like leaving the country. (laughs) It's going to be very, they're going to start garnishing his account. They're going to start going up to his house and taking fixtures and taking cars and taking all these other things. Because also I think that that's just kind of how this goes. It's not just against the company. It's against him too. So they'll find a way. I think, I think also people talk about how he's broke and he talks on the show about how he's broke all the time and how the show is broke. I don't think people find that credible. I think he's, it's more likely that he's moving money around, especially when you look at like what his margins on some of his products are (laughs) and how his sales um, certainly I don't think he's making as much money as he was five, 10 years ago, but, um, I think there's definitely assets for people to go after. I mean, he, he flew to Sandy Hook in a private jet and stayed in a villa. Well, that's what I'm saying. So it's like, even if he does claim bankruptcy, there's going to exist at some point assets somewhere that they will be able to seize at some point. You can't hide from that. Right. 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 And in the United States, we don't have like debtors prison. Like he's not going to, he's not going to be arrested. The only way you are arrested is if you're like actively avoiding giving money that you have. If, okay. you, if you legitimately do not have the money, they're not going to put you in jail because the idea is like, you need to go out and make more money so that they can take it. And you can't do that from jail. It's just not, it's like a policy. Is there like a certain that. percentage? Like, do they come, do they just decide like, okay, we know you don't have a billion dollars. So, you know, all your future earnings based on what your you know monthly nut is, your cost each month, you can afford to take 27% out of each check. And that's what you're, you know, that's how they assign it. Because he is in bankruptcy, they're going to have to do like come up with a plan for bankruptcy. That's all bankruptcy really is, is like a plan for the reorganization. He'll probably declare personal bankruptcy too. And then they'll have to, it's usually like a, an order of lien holders who comes first and how to divide up the pie. It's all very complicated, um, but that's what they'll have to do. They'll have no choice. Now, I mean, something similar is sort of happening, you know, with uh, Tasha Kay. Now, Tasha Kay was a blogger who essentially went and told a bunch of lies about Cardi B and Cardi B did, had, had enough. I mean, I think she was saying that she had an STD. She had, you know, she was a prostitute, all of these things. And I think in the beginning, Cardi B actually said, just take take the videos down. Just take the videos down, you know. And, you know, that's sort of like, if you've been following sort of the Bethany TikTok drama, that's sort of what Bethany, she sent a cease and desist, like, take it down. And I think you always get that first warning because people don't really want to go into litigation. They just want you to shut up. And, but, you know, Tasha K fought it. And essentially she ended up with a $4 million judgment. Cardi B won a $4 million judgment against this blogger. Tasha has recently said she has $1,083 in her bank account that I think she even took out and like gave, gave away to her, one of her followers. Cardi B has moved to, you know, get this money and a judge ordered essentially like, you need to, I think because Tasha K is appealing it, but the j- judge said, you know, you need to come up with the money or the bond. Hey, what does that mean? Come up with the money or a bond? Like, what if you just how ha- don't you have to have like assets in order to like secure a bond? Like, what if you don't have that? Right. So basically, it's very normal. This also happened in the um, Johnny Depp trial that if you have a judgment against you and you're going to appeal, you need to put a certain amount in an escrow account that's held as bond. So that you know, like, should you lose that money will go to the person who you owe the judgment to. And the question is, if you don't have the money, how do you pay that bond, even if you want to appeal? Now, there's um, various ways that you can work with, like, financers to try and um, use secured assets to support that bond. So, for example, you can put down the, the bond provider will put down however much, and then you will secure that with a lien on your house. So if you run away, don't pay it, whatever, then they take your house. But there's ways to sort of get around that if you need to, but it's very difficult to, and it's not a fun process. And it's certainly not fun to try and secure collateral for all of these sort of bond procedures. The question ultimately is, and and this is something that they'll have to contend with in, in really all of these cases, is how much money does someone actually have? Um, people will try their very best to move assets around, but it's very hard to move assets around without a paper trail being generated. 
So if she's withdrawing stuff from her bank account, moving things in, into trusts, that people do that a lot. Um, I think Alex Jones has tried to do that. He has a couple trusts with I think, close to $100 million in one of them I've, I've read. But that's something very common. But ultimately, they'll find it. <laughs> There's forensic accountants who do this all day. All they do is go through paperwork and find accounts. So she will not be successful in doing that for very long. She has assets to collect on. Well, what's even funnier is, you know, because in this age of part of, I think, the rise of defamation comes along with the fact that, like, we, I call myself a social media journalist, right? Like, everyone can become a journalist now, but everyone doesn't have, like, money to actually, like, like, some people are just like, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. I don't have a job. Like, I just come online to, you know, solicit badges and donations, you know? So it's even, um, I would think, more crazy that you're slapping people with defamation suits, you know? Because with, you know, again, with the Bethany Frankel drama and the TikTok drama, the TikToker, Meredith, says... I I can't fight this. Like this is, you know, she's a, a millionaire, multimillionaire. I my husband is in school. And I feel like a lot of people it kind of gets scary because there is this whole feeling of like being feel like being bullied by the big guy, right? Like maybe sometimes you feel like I can say what I want, but they can shut you up because it gets it can get expensive if you just don't say the right thing or say it the wrong way. Right. And I think there it's also important to to sort of see the difference between like the various things people are using. So like Bethany Frankel just sent a cease and desist, right? And I think you have to take that with a grain of salt because sometimes people will send cease and desist because they just want something taken down and that'll be the end of it. Or maybe they actually do intend to sue. You really don't know, but I think people need to be thoughtful about making sure they're saying things that are true. And if you're saying something that's true and something that's, you know, either the truth or a, a complete opinion, you say that it's an opinion, you point out both sides, you do the right thing. I think it's very unlikely that you're actually going to be sued for defamation because defamation is still, they're hard suits to bring and they're hard suits to win if there's not a lot of evidence that someone was saying something that they knew or should have known is false. I think anyone who's saying something online about someone with especially um, a large following or who's, who's a prominent person, you got to just be very careful if you're saying stuff that, um, especially if the person themselves has kind of come out and been like, no, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true at all. <laughs> I would recommend not saying that thing again, because it's just that you're asking for trouble there. Well, I just know I'm glad I met you because um, <laughs> hopefully if I ever get in trouble, you will want to represent me. You know, obviously <laughs> we are going to have a lot more of Kiki's courts because there's just so many trials. I mean, we haven't even talked about the Shia LaBeouf and FKA Twig trial that's coming. And like you mentioned at the beginning, you know, still following Johnny and Amber because, you know, this this lawsuit she has with the insurance company is even kind of, a you know, just as big of a deal because they're essentially saying, well, we don't have to pay your legal fees because you were found guilty of malice, defamation with malice, and that's not covered under your policy. So she could be on the hook for that on top of her judgment. Not only that, they also said, we told you which lawyers to use, and you didn't use the lawyers we told you to use. You used yeah. Elaine. Yeah. <laughs> they were pissed about that too, which I just thought was like, oh man, she just gets she just gets really a lot of yeah. a lot of hate. So it's uh, gonna it's be not gonna help. so much. So we're definitely gonna have you back. Thank you so much. Follow Kate Watson Moss on Instagram. And uh, you know, obviously, if you need a good defamation attorney, she's an amazing one. <laughs> Thank you so much, Thank Kate. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks. This has been another episode of Kiki with the Talk of Shame. I'm your host, Kiki Monique. This is a Red Rock music podcast. Make sure to like and subscribe wherever it is you're listening and follow me on social so you don't miss any of the tea between episodes at The Talk of Shame on Instagram and TikTok. And until next time, let's kiki about it. Thank you.